Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do have a good martini, but it's in the middle today. We're going bad, good, crazy for your Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. And uh, Jim, we have to start with this story. And it's the second consecutive day that we woke up to somewhat stunning news about a world leader. Now, I think most people saw the writing on the wall politically for uh, Boris Johnson uh, stepping down as British prime minister. His entire party was basically telling him to go. And at that point, he had to. But uh, what we learned about in Japan as we woke up today was absolutely shocking. Uh, Shinzo Abe, the uh, multi-time Japanese prime minister, strong, strong ally of the United States, Uh, somebody we've uh, forged a great relationship with in trying to confront China, depending on the president, Uh, certainly in confronting North Korea, uh, really just one of our strongest allies in the world. And sadly and horrifically, he was assassinated while giving a campaign speech in public, uh, I guess, earlier today at Japan time, um, shot twice, uh, thought to be in grave condition were the initial reports. And then just a short time later, it was announced that he was dead. Uh, You had reaction in the middle of the night from people like President Trump and Vice President Pence. Finally, mid-morning today, we got one from uh, President Biden saying what you would expect a a president to say in that situation, shocked and outraged and so forth. But uh, Jim, this is is one of our strongest allies. We don't talk about Japan uh, a lot in that relationship, but it's a critical one, particularly as there's a lot of bad actors in that part of the world. And so to lose uh, someone like Shinzo Abe is horrible, and especially in this manner. Indeed, Greg, and I, I wouldn't pretend to be a you know full soup to nuts expert on Japanese politics, but you, you could be an American with just the basic wherewithal of Asian politics and recognize that Shinzo Abe was a very big deal. He was the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. Um, as you mentioned, he was relatively tough and maybe even some would say bellicose regarding China. Um, he was, he had, I've seen him characterized as an ultra nationalist. And I wonder if that really is, you know, a, you know, the Japanese think of that the same way we would think of that. I think it's safe to say that he believed that, uh, Japan lived in a dangerous neighborhood and that it's post world war II tradition of pacifism and non-intervention and non-militarization was not going to be sustainable. Uh, that at some point Japan was going to have to take responsibility for the safety and security of its citizens. Um, He was something of a free market, at least by Japanese politics standards. Uh, And the other thing I just kind of was laying out in today's morning jolt is that um, by the standards of Japanese politicians, I don't want to say he was zany, but he he was a little more colorful. Uh, I think I suspect many listeners might remember the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics, where they were talking about the next Summer Olympics were going to be in Tokyo. And he appeared coming out of a giant pipe dressed up as Mario from Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> um, you know, and there was, you know, he had a, a surprisingly close and almost warm relationship with President Trump. I've seen people uh, showing the footage of them feeding the fish and Trump kind of dumping out his container. But um, they, they golfed a lot. Uh, they, you know, it's, you know, there's that infamous picture of uh, Merkel talking to uh, Trump at the G7 summit. You can see Shinzo Abe in the background, arms folded, not quite rolling his eyes, but kind of realizing she's going to get nowhere with this, but I'm not going to stop her. If she wants to waste her breath, she can do that. Um, he was charismatic by the standards of Japanese politicians. He was 
colorful by the standards of Japanese politicians. Um, and just kind of for perspective, uh, Matthew Continetti uh, writes for us sometimes at National Review, founded the Washington Free Beacon, you know, kind of has this new history out about the history of the conservative movement. Uh, back in 2018, he wrote Shinzo Abe is Japanese Reagan, uh, meaning, you know, referencing Ronald Reagan. And let's face it, in conservative circles, when you're calling someone their Reagan, that's about as high praise as you possibly can. Um, and I just think that he was just this giant. He stepped down a few years, I guess, in 2020 because of health issues. He'd had a, a colitis, I believe, which was a you know acting up and made it impossible for him to continue. Handed things off to a deputy. But as you can see from this, he was still a very prominent figure in Japanese politics. And um, you know, the other thing which is so striking, uh, my uh, my wife mentioned this to me shortly as I was getting out of bed this morning. And uh, you know, she she you know was more of a Japanophile than I am. And uh, she'd mentioned, yeah, my first, like, he was shot, he was assassinated. Oh my God. You know, my first thought, you know, was this um, some Om um Shinriko style crazy cult? Was this, you know, I don't know much crime over there, but like, is the Yakuza hitting him for something he did? You know, and no, apparently, at least based on what we know at this hour, it's just some nut. It's just some nut who, according to one report in one Japanese newspaper, didn't even know he was killing Shinzo Abe. He thought he was some sort of, other religious leader. Now, at a you know, in the immediate aftermath of something like this, there's a lot of erroneous information that can get out there. So maybe that won't be the case, but this does not appear to be any sense of organized terrorism. This doesn't appear to be any type of um, specific political motivation. This is just a crazy person who saw him on television and developed some sort of obsession about him. It is shocking to the Japanese people. They just don't have things like this. Um, we in the United States, you know, we're going back, you know, Lincoln assassination, Kennedy assassination. We, we unfortunately are kind of used to assassinations and attempted assassinations of prominent figures. You know, just a few weeks ago, we had the Brett Kavanaugh incident outside his house. In Japan, this just doesn't happen. And this is going to shock them probably on a scale comparable to the JFK assassination here in the United States. And kind of my closing thought on this was just that um, a couple years back, I'd gone to the uh, the sixth floor museum, which is in the Dealey Plaza building, the book the book depository. They've turned it into really a really good museum about the presidency of John F. Kennedy, and obviously about the assassination and uh, the killing of Oswald afterwards, and all of that. And the last section is kind of about the legacy of JFK, and also like the conspiracy theories and why so many people believe it couldn't just be Lee Harvey Oswald; it had to be. The Soviets, the CIA, the mob, you know, some sinister forces beyond that. And there was a quote by some psychologist in one of these videos that kind of stuck with me. And he says, at the, it, you know, deep down, a lot of us just don't want to believe that someone as significant as John F. Kennedy could be killed by someone as insignificant as Lee Harvey Oswald. It can't just be some random nut who had a lucky shot. It has to be something bigger. It has to be something more significant and meaningful. I think there's an element of this to, to Abe's death today, that, that the sense that um, however he was meant to die, it was not meant to be because of some nut who thought he was killing someone else. It just seems too meaningless, too irrational, too uh, inconsequential uh, for a man who had been so consequential to his country. So really... Um, you know, the, the, I feel so bad for the Japanese people today who are experiencing this shock um, and this disruption to uh, a society that, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time they can walk around with peace and, and a sense of confidence that something like this would never happen.
Yeah, well said, Jim. And uh, it's just remarkable where we are with Japan right now. Um, you know, obviously we were their sworn enemy during World War II, but then as soon as the war was over, General MacArthur literally wrote their new constitution. Uh, their new government got going. We, we you know, helped them instead of uh, leaving them on the, the side of the road. Uh, and over those last 70 years, the relationship has grown and grown and grown. It's really a testament to what American foreign policy can do when uh, when it's doing things in a competent way uh, with a with a vision towards the future. And of course, you know, in our lifetime, it's been a very strong relationship. Japan's been part of the G7, G8, whatever the, the number's up to now. Uh, we had the brief hiccup there. Remember late 80s, 90s when Japan's economy was soaring and ours was sputtering a little bit and we got some uh, <laughs> movies that were not too friendly towards the Japanese. And then, uh, and then uh, you know, a few years later, their economy started to, to, to sputter a little bit and then uh, the relationship got stronger again. But I don't think it's been stronger ever than uh, during the time that Shinzo Abe was prime minister. I think his first go around was in the late stages of the George W. Bush administration. Then he was back for Obama and then he was back for Trump. So uh, in the parliamentary system, you can... You can uh, you can have a, a few bites at the apple with that job. So uh, and then some days he just felt like he was more insistent on getting rid of North Korean nukes than South Korea was. I mean, he was just the mm. stalwart in the region. And hopefully uh, whoever is uh, the next leader there, I know he's not the he wasn't the current prime minister, but whoever uh, continues in that role uh, continues the same policy towards the United States and towards the threats in that region, because it's a vital, vital alliance. Um, anyway, on to our first sponsor of the day, and that is the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020, with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it's not Mike Pence, but Vice President Kamala Harris, who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she would have the right to determine which electoral votes count and why because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now, sign up to get updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project again urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get those updates so that by 2024, there is no question that Vice President Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. Again, presidentialelectionproject.com. Former Trump White House official Brooke Rollins explains how she and other conservatives are preparing to help the next Republican president advance their agenda and successfully fight the bureaucracy. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Rollins also explains how President Trump was able to accomplish so much despite the government working against him and how getting the right congressional staffers is vital. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our good martini now. And uh, when there's good news on the economic front, uh, we point that out regardless who's president. We always say that. But uh, in the uh, month of June, 372,000 non-farm jobs added to our economy, which is better than the 250,000 uh, the Dow Jones had estimated the overall unemployment rate remains at 3.6%. And so, uh, Jim, I know you and I are probably both annoyed to some extent how Joe Biden talks about the greatest job growth in the first year and a half of any presidency ever. Well, when states and other entities forced people to close and then they're allowed to open again due to a pandemic, 
yeah, it's great that the jobs are back, but I'm not exactly sure they're related to any specific policy other than you're allowed to go back to work now. Uh, also, uh, wages ticking up a little bit more than expectations, still not keeping up with inflation. So, uh, Jim, it'll be curious to see later this month what the second quarter GDP numbers are, but uh, maybe this will stunt it a little bit in terms of uh, staving off a recession, at least for the moment. Yeah, look, you can find things in this jobs report that aren't so great. Um the re previous months were revised downward. Um, you can point out that uh, now there were 98% of the jobs we had in March 2020 before the pandemic hit. Uh, but having said that, we've actually increased population. So we still have kind of lost ground. Uh, but I think there's there's no, you know, we shouldn't get around the fact, we should celebrate the fact that, look, 375,000 jobs, you know, 372,000 jobs is a lot of jobs to create in one month. And that that's really something, you know, in addition to beating the expectations, um, just kind of indicates that that's one part of our economy that's working well. And I think kind of illuminates the oddity of the circumstances that we're in. Because when you, when you think of recessions, you think of high massive layoffs, high unemployment, uh, people collecting, you know, needing to go on government assistance, you know, the usual problems of an economic downturn. And as much as Americans are frustrated and anxious about the economy right now, that's not actually our problem. We've had uh, in addition to having lo relatively low unemployment by historical standards, you know, particularly month by month during the Biden administration, we've also had um, this, you know, surprisingly high number of job openings. That figure went past 10 million. And last I checked, it was in the neighborhood of 11.5 million. Uh, you know, America's businesses are hiring in massive numbers. And, you know, as much as the, the Biden administration is entitled to take a victory lap over that. The problem is finding a job is not what most Americans are upset about. And in fact, I think, you know, we've kind of been observing for a while now. It used to be that your, you know, uh, local businesses you'd go to would have a sign in the window saying help wanted. And then it would said, please apply within. We are short staffed. And now it's please be patient with our service. We're short staffed. Um, just a general sense that there's a worker shortage. Naturally, Joe Biden still runs around the country promising that his uh, uh, his policies will create jobs. That's not the problem. We have a worker shortage. That's here. We need people to put into those jobs. That's the problem. Um, also, we have a problem of runaway inflation. And so the good news is, yeah, people are working. Uh, people are earning. The you know wage numbers are you know, on paper they're up. They're not up as high as the rate of inflation. So your actual ability to purchasing power, so to speak, you're actually what you can get for your money is declining. And I think this is a you know formula for a different kind of economic frustration amongst Americans. People aren't frustrated that they can't find jobs. People are not frustrated that people aren't hiring. People are frustrated that they're working and they don't feel like they're getting anywhere because prices keep increasing. And it's not just in one sector or another. You know, We talk about the real estate bubble every now and then. Look, it is gas, it is food, it is all the stuff you need for your life. Never mind, you know, if you want to go on airline tickets, do you want a vacation or uh, buy a new car or something like that. It's going to cross the board, all kinds of sectors. So on the one hand, look, Biden's going to take a bow over this. And I think he's entitled to take a little bit of credit because every politician, every president likes to believe that the job creation rate is entirely because of their policies. And, and it, you know, anybody who's realistic knows the president has very limited ability to control the economy. But that's not really what people are worrying about. And I, I, if you're thinking about whether this will help Democrats in the midterms or something like that, I don't know if it'll do Democrats that much good to say the economy's doing great, the economy's doing great, everybody's gonna, uh, everybody's, you know, all these people are hiring, look at how low the unemployment rate is. When most Americans are saying, yeah, I'm working and nobody I know is unable to find a job, we just can't afford anything because gas prices and everything else keep going up higher and higher week after week.
yeah, we welcome the numbers, but it doesn't mean the economy is good, which is it's weird. Usually these things kind of work in tandem. Uh, they're not right now. It's the prices. It's the inflation. It's the it's the policies on specific items like energy. Uh, and who knows what's happening with food here in the coming weeks and months. We keep hearing horror stories and hopefully they're exaggerated, but the, there are some indications that they're not. And, uh, you know, I, you know, politically, these uh, ideas about where our economy stands, and we just talked about how it's the number one concern overwhelmingly among voters this week. Uh, that's pretty well baked into the cake by now, certainly by Labor Day, which is less than two months away now. And so I don't uh, ex expect a major uh, public shift on that based on one jobs report. But still, uh, better than expectations is, is something we'll take. Uh, meanwhile, if you're trying to fight off inflation, but you still want uh, quality products, MyPillow has a phenomenal offer for you. They're fantastic My Slippers, which are currently on my feet. Their blowout sale still going on. Regularly priced, $139.98. The blowout price, just $49.98 with the promo code Martini. You know, Greg, when you talk like that, I thought it was a new product. There's the MyPillow, the My Slippers, and now the new My Feet. <laughs> but you cannot purchase the feet of Greg Columbus. What you can purchase are the My Slippers, and it took two years to develop their exclusive four-tier cushioning system. You've got the MyPillow patented fill, you've got the Comfort Memory Foam, you've got the patented Impact Gel, and the Indoor-Outdoor Sole, which means you can wear it indoors, outdoors, wherever you like, all day long. The My Slippers are made with quality leather suede. They're available in a variety of styles, colors, and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. So go to MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 for the MySlippers at only $49.95. While you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the buy one, get one free extravaganza on bedsheets, MyPillows, and more. Visit MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104 today the most comfortable slippers you'll ever own and get Mike's book free. MyPillow.com slash martini or call 800-874-0104. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And New York Democrats don't seem to have learned their lesson. One of the big Supreme Court decisions at the end of the term, of course, was the Bruin decision where by a six to three margin, the court said, yeah, you're not allowed to demand a reason for people who want a concealed carry permit. Uh, the right to keep and bear arms is clearly enshrined in the Second Amendment. So in New York, you can't make them come up with what you think is a justifiable reason to conceal carry. Well, now New York's trying to make a second go at this. And uh, Jim, I'm pretty sure they're headed for a very similar conclusion. Uh, New York State now rolling out a different way uh, to try and, I guess, uh, slow down the process for concealed carry. They're going to make everyone applying for one of these permits hand over their social media accounts for a review of their quote-unquote character and conduct. So, Jim, that seems awfully vague. Now, in the wake of you know what we saw in uh, Highland Park, Illinois on the 4th of July. And now you see some of these these postings about that guy. Okay. I mean, that could certainly uh, be interesting and, and it may be used as a reason for somebody not to have a weapon. But uh, when you have <laughs> just generic character and conduct, that could be anybody ranting against any political statement that some uh, Democratic bureaucrat in New York doesn't like. And that's where we get into big trouble. Greg, I was chewing this over because in, after recent mass shootings, you and I have talked about this and I've, I've expressed this brewing fury and frustration that after every one of these, you hear 
uh, anecdote after anecdote of the mass shooter, uh, all kinds of things we'd call red flags, not just in the legal sense, but kind of in the metaphorical, psychological sense. In some of these cases, literally saying that they want to kill people, literally saying that they intend to kill people. Um, the sort of things that could have been reported to law enforcement as threats, but that no one did so, uh, either believing that other people would do so, or my suspect that they didn't feel like doing it to the police would, would, you know, would make any difference. The police wouldn't respond. The police, police wouldn't take it seriously or something like that. Um, if I could be assured that the law enforcement officials who'd be handling these sorts of things would treat things like that seriously. Oh, on your, on this, you know, Twitter post or Facebook post, you said you were mad at the world. And you wanted to kill anybody, kill everybody. I don't think you should get your concealed carry permit because that's that's the, making a threat. You know, if it, if I knew they were going to handle it that way, fine. The problem is I don't trust them to handle it that way. I do worry about this being used to say, oh, you know, you, uh, oh, you're at the January sixth uh, uh, protest, huh? Okay, well, that's we're going we're to reject you for that. Or um, this one says you're mad as hell at Governor Cuomo or mad as hell at Governor uh, Governor Huckle or you know any, some other political figure or something like that, and that. Um, what I would characterize as non-explicitly threatening expressions of anger at political figures that are not a representative of a, you know, clear pressing danger threat to, to harm someone, but merely expressing the usual, you know, uh, extraordinary exasperation we have with our elected officials, that people will start using that as an excuse to deny someone a concealed carry permit. Maybe I'm being paranoid. Maybe I'm being ridiculous. Um, but I do. I, I guess it's very tough to have faith in the good judgment of law enforcement, because we've now had several, and they really go back, you know, Stoneman Douglas shooting, the Uvalde shooting, the Highland Park shooting. In each one of these cases, right, we've got a gunman who fits this all too familiar profile of being a young, angry man, isolated, all kinds of signs of emotional and mental health issues, but they're in this nebulous state of not real. They're not a convicted felon. But oftentimes they've had the police called on them for domestic disturbances a bunch of times. They're a known troublemaker to their peers and classmates, teach, teachers, other adults, um, all kinds of circumstances that could have led to criminal charges but didn't. And I don't know whether the prosecution, you know, it seemed like too much trouble or cops looked at them and said, ah, you know, they're at it again. It's just a screwed up kid or something like that. Or maybe there was some misguided effort. Oh, if we put them into the criminal justice system, it's just going to make them worse. Uh, you know, maybe they tried to refer him to mental health resources and there just weren't enough resources there. Whatever it is, we've seen this unfortunate pattern. Now, if this idea, the New York State legislature proposal is like, okay, this is how we get down on this. When these people apply for a concealed carry permit, we go through the social media, we look for signs like this, and this, those are the people we prevent a concealed carry permit to. Okay, then I could have more faith in this proposal. But at this point, I just don't because I just feel like there are just too many busybodies who would want to abuse this out of some sort of vendetta against people who they just don't like because of their politics. Yeah, according to the law, it'd be up to the local sheriff staff, judges, or county clerks to scroll through social media profiles to see if they've made any statements suggesting dangerous behavior. However, that's not the only thing you have to do if you want to get a concealed carry permit in New York. The law also requires applicants to undergo hours of safety training, prove they're proficient at shooting, not sure those should be mandatory, but I think they're good ideas. Uh, provide four character references and sit for in-person interviews, Jim. I mean, talk, <laughs> it's going to be months before you can finally get your weapon uh, when there's no evidence potentially in most cases that you're a threat to anybody. Greg, I'd like to think that if the Highland Park shooter walked in and said, I'd like a concealed carry permit for that in-person interview, 
the cops would look at him and say, okay, this kid, this kid, this kid is bad news. This kid is not, you know, his alphabet doesn't go all the way to Z and we're not going to, we're not going to approve that. That having been said, the idea of, you know, somebody coming in with a MAGA hat or, you know, some other uh, signifier of political beliefs that are entirely protected by the constitution and that government official deciding, mm, I don't like that. I'm going to reject that. It's too much, too, too much chance of a, a concealed carry permit being issued only on this arbitrary and capricious standard. Yeah. Too much power over our basic constitutional rights. Um, so, and I can also imagine, yeah, we're just going to schedule your in-person interview. How is August of 2028 for you? I said, we, we had a terrible backlog. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, it will get back to you shortly after the IRS returns your call. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit skeptical that these people are on the up and up New York state leaders, you know, it's hard to believe that I've, I've, I don't have faith in them anymore, Jim, but uh, that's where I am. Call me cynical. Greg, Greg, why would you have any problems with a New York, you know, law enforcement, uh, state law enforcement agencies headed by people like, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo and uh, Eric Schneiderman and um, uh, Elliot Spitzer? You know, they just have winner after winner. They're, they're all good, upstanding citizens who you can trust. Yes. Yeah, they, they know what they're doing. Exactly. Letitia James, who's very, very far left. She yeah. she did us all a favor on Cuomo, uh, and I think she was right on that one. But man, she's way off base on a lot of stuff. But uh, Jim, on that note, we were able to squeeze in one good martini today, but it's uh, sandwiched in between two that are definite head scratchers here and very sad news again uh, out of Japan. But uh, here's hoping for better news on Monday. Have a good weekend. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Also tell a friend about us as well. And thank you. Thank you seriously for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They're a huge help to us. Remember also you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, everyone. And please join us on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. Your reflections um, get at, I found myself saying uh, over the course of the last week that there's the moral integrity of the country has uh, been restored on this question. Now, you, you will certainly disagree with me because of your, your uh, disagreement with the opinion itself, which I, I think is completely accurate. And I think I'm wrong to say the moral integrity has been repaired. But what has been damaged? I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.